Our guest today is Kate Jeffrey. She is a professor of behavioral neuroscience at University College London, researching how the brain assembles sensory information into an internal representation of space for navigation. Her current research focuses on how the brain represents complex space like three-dimensional space, as well as the internal sense of direction. She founded and is currently the director of the Institute of Behavioral Neuroscience in the Division of Psychology and Language Sciences at UCL, and is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology and the Royal Institute of Navigation. So let's start with how it all began, the origin of life. So I know you've been thinking a lot about this. So let me begin by asking if, you know, according to the second law of thermodynamics, entropy always increases, and this is associated with increasing disorder, then how did life, you know, such an ordered complex system originate? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. That's a really big question. And it's a, bit, it's a bit outside my research area. It's not something I'd normally research, but I started thinking about it um, two or three years ago when I um, started to get interested in the climate crisis and the um, conundrum that humanity finds itself in. <laughs> and, I, and I started reading about the, the sort of, um, the evolutionary antecedents to all of this. So, you know, the, um, the way that life has evolved and how it's evolved its use of carbon and its production of carbon over the millions and billions of years since life began and how there have been these periodic crises with the Earth's climate that have created mass extinctions. So I found the whole thing fascinating. Um, and, and I started thinking about the strangeness of the fact that over evolutionary time, life has become more and more complex. And despite these periodic crises where there are mass extinctions and almost all of the species get wiped out, um, it still continues to get more complex and, and humans in some ways are the most complex life forms of all if you consider not only our bodily forms but also all the stuff that we do and I was sort of aware you know of the second law of thermodynamics and how entropy always increases and, and according to my understanding which at the beginning was fairly simple um, I had in my mind this kind of um, equating of um, of entropy with disorder, and disorder to me means loss of complexity. Um, so it felt like life was swimming against the tide. And I sort of knew that life was not violating the second law of entropy, but at the same time, I couldn't explain in my own mind why therefore it was getting more complex. And I presented these ideas at a neuroscience conference that I was at. It was a very um, small and, and kind of elite conference. Um, that had convened just to throw around some ideas and I was supposed to talk about my research on space and spatial encoding. <laughs> um, but there, there were physicists there, including Sean Carroll and Carlo Rivelli, and, and I thought this is my big opportunity to, ta to ask them about these bigger questions that I've been grappling with. So I ditched my uh, planned talk on space and I presented instead this talk on um, ultimately about the climate crisis. So it was also meant to be provoking some conversation about the climate crisis, but it was framed in this question of um, how did we get to this situation? Um, more complex, we get more carbon, we're producing more, you know, more we look like we're about to 
um, extinguish ourselves and yet we keep getting more complex over evolutionary time and why is this and why is that not violating entropy and all the rest of it. And um, so I had some really good conversations with both Sean Carroll and Carlo Rivelli. And, and from that, I sort of began to understand that actually the increase in complexity is consistent with entropy. So I was wrong in thinking about entropy as disorder. It's, it's more sort of subtle than that. And actually the increase in complexity brings with it an increase in the rate at which um, matter, so life, you know, which is aggregated matter, um, is taking energy from what we call free energy, which is energy that can do work and it's turning it into um, heat, which can't do work. Um, so the complexity in a way is consistent with entropy. Um, and so, you know, we wrote some papers about that and I'm, but I still continue to think about it because it's still not fully transparent why um, complexity increases. Nevertheless, I can see that complexity is not inconsistent with entropy, but what's driving complexity to increase over time is still something I'm thinking about. Would you say that the increase in entropy is actually necessary for this increase in complexity? Um, yes, I guess, I guess you could put it like that, because uh, the increase in complexity is using free energy. And whenever you use free energy to do work, to move things around, which you need to do to create complexity, um, then you are generating heat, which is, you know, energy that can't do any more work. So yes, I, I mean, it wouldn't work without it. Like entropy is kind of the powerhouse of the universe in a way. What are some of the key events that really drove evolution to the levels of complexity that we see today. So if if you were some intelligent alien observing the process of evolution on a micro and macro scale on Earth, and say you had to write a book for your home planet on this, what do you think would be the main chapters? Well, I think, I mean, it, it, it's, it's slightly difficult to quantify when you start thinking about it at a fine-grained level, because there are some things we about you know, life that we don't fully know how to quantify. For example, complexity. There are lots and lots of different definitions and measures of complexity, but nobody's really been able to agree on one. <laughs> um, and there has been this notion in evolutionary circles for quite a long time about um, transitions in evolution, so sudden step changes in complexity that have occurred. So, for example, um, for the first, you know, billion years or so of, of life, it was really boring, you know, <laughs> uh, um, from the outside, it look, looks boring. It was single cells, it just lived in the oceans, it just photosynthesized quietly, it didn't, didn't really do much. Um, but, you know, there, there were um, events in evolutionary time that caused what looked to us like big changes. For example, um, photosynthesis was one, actually. So the, the acquisition of the ability to photosynthesize meant that organisms didn't have to get their energy from, you know, heat sources, local heat sources, they could get it from the sun and they could store it and, and all this kind of stuff. So, so there were some sort of cellular um, transitions in evolution and then um, multicellularity began. And, and I think that was a big step change in what looks like complexity to us. So life went from being single celled, you know, slime to things that were kind of simple at the beginning, but, but quickly got much more complex and, that, and could do more things. 
And um, I think, of course, I'm a little biased, but I think also the evolution of uh, neural transmission was a, a big transition and evolution because it meant that cells within an organism could um, orchestrate their activity so that, you know, different cells could do different things and they could react to things that were changing in the environment. And um, indeed, as brains started to develop and get more complex, organisms started to be able to predict what was going to happen in the environment. Um, and that, that kind of predictive coding is something that we're very interested in at the moment as neuroscientists, the fact that an organism can not just um, react to what's going on, but can, can actually plan and optimize its, its activities. So um, yeah, that's... And in your paper, you also talk about these evolutionary transitions as expanding an organism's ability to integrate space and time. Do you think that this is fundamental in evolution? Yes, I think space and time go hand in hand. You can't really operate um, in an interesting way in, in one without the other. So, for example, these transitions in evolution, uh, one of the things that they brought is the ability for um, the processes of life to extend their reach in space. So, for example, with the development of photosynthesis, you know, a, a cell could reach out, if you like, into the environment and grab energy from the sun. Um, and it could store it as molecules, which could then be moved around the cell. So that's another spatial process. Uh, and then cells started to be able to move. So they developed a structure that could let them actually um, change their location in the environment, which meant that they could optimize their position to, to get food or to get sunlight or whatever. Um, and then nervous systems, along with nervous systems, we developed um, muscles and skeletons and the ability to, to move often quite quickly and again to change change your location in space so i think um, with each of these new developments organisms have um, i mean ultimately what's happening is that they've increased the number of kind of interactions that are able to occur in their in their various parts <laughs> and those interactions then open up new possibilities for for action so that's and and each of those new possibilities for action uh, increases the amount that those organisms are using up energy. Mm. So that's that's what kind of eventually um, brought me back to the climate crisis because what's happened with the evolution of of the complexity of human technological civilization is that every new development increases our taking of free energy and turning it into heat. And the internet's a really good example of that. So that was a kind of a transition in. Uh, industrial evolution, if you like, uh, and that's massively increased our uh, energy usage because it's opened up new possibilities for what we can do. And, you know, we're, we're discovering new possibilities all of the time. And one of the most recent, you know, ones which boggles my mind is cryptocurrency, which solely exists to produce entropy, as far as I can tell, <laughs> for taking free energy and turning it into heat. That's, that's how it works. Um, so, yeah, and I think this was the insight that came from Carlo Rivelli from my conversations with him, that, um, that the progression of life is constantly increasing the production of entropy. So it's a, a constantly accelerating process, which is a little concerning in a way, uh, but also quite fascinating, I think. Wait, what do you mean by cryptocurrency solely exists to increase entropy? 
So cryptocurrency, I mean, currency itself is quite interesting because because what currency enables is long range interactions between humans. Um, and it's an incredible invention and it's and it's partly why we've been able to do as much as we've been able to, to do. Um, but cryptocurrency is generated by uh, computers that are solving problems and that takes energy and you know these um, Bitcoin miners or cryptocurrency miners are just enormous complexes of um, computers, sometimes concentrated in one huge place or sometimes distributed across many individuals, but they, collectively it's an enormous dedication of computing resources purely to solving those problems, uh, not for any other reason than to generate um, a kind of a mutually agreed notion of quote unquote value. So they're not they're not really producing anything tangible. It's that's producing something very um, very kind of intangible, if you like, and and producing heat in the process. So so the energy consumption of um, one of these you know, big Bitcoin mining operations is equivalent to a small nation. It's huge amounts of energy. Um, so you know, along with the internet, we've discovered new ways. Of creating heat. <laughs> and not only does that speed up the entry of the universe in a, in a small way, but um, of course, because our energy um, is mostly still fossil fuel based, um, we're creating a lot of carbon. And that is trapping the sun's heat and, and you know, with consequences that we see all around us. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little concerning for us because it's sort of suggesting that with increased complexity, we have in increased instability. And you know, in thinking about how we get ourselves out of this conundrum, I find myself always turning to evolution because evolution has had billions of years to think about these problems. <laughs> and evolution has solved the problem of instability and complexity by evolving highly orchestrated systems. And, and the brain is a really good example of that, where um, despite all of its complexity, it works incredibly well because it has all of these modules that all have uh, jobs to do, um, much of which involves regulating the other modules. Um, so, so, you know, we've been able to develop and maintain this complexity because we've evolved stabilizing factors, if you like. So, uh, so I sort of think human civilization is going to have to adopt that same approach somehow if we're going to solve the, the energy problem that we have at the moment. What is it about like having different modules in the brain that makes it stabilizing? Well, there are, you know, the brain um, has to solve a lot of different problems. In fact, um, Marvin Minsky, who is one of the sort of founders of modern AI, um, called it the society of mind. You know, really in your brain, you have um, so many um, subsystems that are doing different things. So some of them are regulating the circadian cycle, some of them are regulating the appetite, reproductive cycles. You know, when you decide, what to do in a day <laughs> you know do i want to go and make a cup of tea or do i want to sit down and do this podcast or do i want to try and do both which i i am actually doing <laughs> you know some some part of your brain has to you know regulate all of this stuff and, and and stop it from getting out of hand so you know you should drink some tea because you're thirsty but you shouldn't drink too much because then you'll become you know um destabilized in, in your um ionic balance and, and all the rest of it and you know this is constantly happening um, at every level of brain organization is uh, processes are happening and then other processes make sure that those processes start and stop at the right time and don't 
uh, get activated when it's not appropriate and, and so on. So, you know, human civilization is, a, is kind of like an organism, but one that hasn't had the benefits of, of billions of years of evolution to, to have these processes built into it. So for example, you know, I think capitalism is a wonderful thing, but it's also kind of racing out of hand like a cancer. And our own body has ways of stopping cells or, or processes from getting out of hand and, and mostly trying to suppress cancer. Occasionally it, it fails, but mostly it succeeds. So I think, you know, we need, to, we need to figure out how do we stop these new processes that we're constantly developing? How do we stop them rapidly getting out of hand? And I don't think we know how to do that yet. That worries me, I must say. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that comparison. Do you see societies and their collective intelligence as like a living organism, like analogous to a single <laughs> human being with its multicellular parts? Well, well, yes and no, um, because the thing about a multicellular organism is that, um, you know, that evolution tells us that, that the kind of the aim, if you like, of a living thing is to reproduce. And of course, it's not as, you know, it's, that's kind of a teleological, teleological way of putting it. It's not really sitting there thinking, how do I reproduce? <laughs> but organisms are successful who have reproduced successfully. And so they're organized in a way that the entire organism will survive to reproduce, but the individual cells themselves don't, don't really care mm -hmm. because every cell has the same genes. So, the, so they'll acquire the genes that maximize the success of the organism. Whereas with human society, we don't all have the same genes and therefore we don't all have the same interest. You know, it matters to me whether I survive or my next door neighbor survives. Um, I don't want, to sacrifice my life for my next door neighbor, much much though I like them, <laughs> I wouldn't do that um, because I, I don't have the neural machinery that would enable me to do that because it didn't evolve because that those genes for sacrificing yourself to save your neighbor wouldn't have survived. You know, so so that's the big difference between human civilization. Um, you know, the the analogy with an organism slightly breaks down at that point. Um, so that is something that we have to try and work around. And we do, we do have some capacity to self-sacrifice for the greater good, but it's only limited. And we need to recognize that. So for example, to solve the climate crisis, we, we all need to rein in our own carbon production, but every one of us benefits from burning carbon, you know, because we get the energy, we get to do what we want to do and, and enhance our own reproductive success and all the rest of it. So from an individual point of view, it makes sense to burn carbon, but from a collective point of view, it's, it's ultimately species suicide. But you know, we, do, we have evolved this capacity to cooperate to solve collective problems. Um, and people will sacrifice a little bit of their own resource for cooperation purposes, provided they can see that everyone else is doing that too and that they're convinced that the benefits will come back to them eventually. So however we solve this problem, we have to, we have to work with that. <laughs> so um, yeah. it's, it's complicated. Yeah, so let, let's, um, maybe let's go into spatial navigation then. How important is like brains evolving the ability to represent space and time? How important was that like in the grand scheme of evolution? I think it was, tremendously important. Although 
I might be biased because you know as a as a mammal <laughs> I think that that vertebrates and, and especially mammals and especially humans are, are really awesome but you know cyanobacterium might say you know you guys are just wasteful and ephemeral and, and you should go extinct but if we're still thinking about complexity and interesting behavior I think the development of brains was really um, important because as a, a, and the capacity to represent space which followed we think probably pretty soon after so um, we're now starting to recognize that the antecedents of the mammalian spatial system um, are present in um, organisms who diverged from us in evolution a very long time ago. And, and I suspect that the basics of navigation, for example, um, some type of limited sense of direction, probably evolved um, pretty soon after the first brains began to form, these, these first neural aggregations that, that organize other neurons. So yeah, I think I think it is really important. Do all organisms that move have the ability of spatial navigation? So evolutionarily, this should be quite an ancient ability, right? Yes. Um, it depends what you mean by navigation. I think all organisms that move have some ability to guide their movements. So even bacteria will show um, what's called taxis, which is movement towards or, or away from the stimulus. So for example, phototaxis, you know, going, going towards light or something like that, um, or chemotaxis, going, going towards a chemical. So that's, that's kind of a simple form of navigation, if you like. But you wouldn't call that, um, the, and you, would, like you wouldn't say that they have the ability to represent space, right? No, I, I wouldn't. Hmm. Um, but when you, progress to the question of what what can represent space you, then you get to the thorny issue of what does it mean to represent space and that's that's a whole it's <laughs> a bit of a viper's nest of, of philosophical discussions mm -hmm. but yes I, I i don't think a, a single celled organism is really representing space um although you know if and i'm not sure whether single celled organisms can do this but if um if the cell had the ability to learn from experience, like for example, to move towards a stimulus and then discover that that was toxic and not go towards that again, you might call that a very, very simple form of representation. So there isn't necessarily a really sharp dividing line between representing and not representing space. So could you take us on a brief historical journey of how did we discover the neural representations of space? Yeah, so, um, so it's, I found it a really interesting story because I, I was kind of closely involved with its unfolding over the last few decades. So we, as, as um, psychological scientists, we've been interested in spatial behavior since the dawn of psychology, which was really the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. So studying how animals find their way around um, has been something that's been fascinating. And, and also to, um, you know, people who study you know, natural populations, ecologists and so on. Um, and psychology started developing formal, formal methods of trying to understand how an animal makes navigational decisions. And for the first quite a long time, for about sort of 20 or 30 years, it was thought that they made navigational decisions the way they make any other type of behavioral decision, which is to, um, form associations between 
things in the environment and actions that, that are beneficial. So you see some food and you reach out and grab it type of thing. So stimulus response learning. And then some experiments started to come along that suggested that, that rats at least have a slightly more abstract ability to know where things are in the environment, even if they haven't experienced um, a specific st stimulus response, you know, rewarded association. And the most, the most famous example of this was an experiment by uh, Edward Tolman, who trained rats to find food at the end of a, of a kind of a, a runway. And then he um, tested the rats by blocking that runway and giving them some alternative choices to take. And he found that rats tended to take the choice that, that took them in the, in the right direction to get the food, even though they had never done that before. So he suggested that the rats actually knew uh, they had some kind of internal representation of where the food was. And that's how they were able to generate this novel response that they had never done before. And he called that internal representation a cognitive map. Um, and that's a word we still use, even though no two people fully agree on what a cognitive map is. <laughs> but it's, it's a kind of a useful um, kind of expression, meaning some type of internal representation of, of, of the layout of things. So, and, and it, it carries with it the implicit idea that there's a representation. It may be a really coarse one, but there's some type of representation of distance and direction of things and of relationships of things to each other. So that's unlike um, just having learned a sequence of actions. So for example, you might've learned in a maze to, to you know, go forward a meter, turn right, uh, go forward two meters, turn left. You, know, you might've learned a sequence of actions, um, but that wouldn't be a map. That would be what we call a route. With a map, you would be able to roughly point in the direction of the goal, because although you've also got the sequence of actions in your head, you can put those together in space um, and understand the spatial relationships so that you could point in the distance and an approximate direction. And it might be not very accurate, but the fact that you can even do that mm. indicates that your brain is able to make spatial inferences. So this was an idea that was kind of uh, tossed around in the literature um, a little bit in the first half of last century, but didn't really gain traction because it didn't seem plausible that the brain could do this. It wasn't, there wasn't an obvious mechanism for how it would do this. But in the 1970s, um, a neuroscientist called John O'Keefe started recording brain cells in the rats of, uh, in, the, in the brains of rats that were exploring space. And the reason he was doing this was, was not to investigate space, it was to investigate memory, because there was evidence coming along that there's a particular part of the brain called the hippocampus that is involved in helping you form memories of life experiences. And neuroscientists were very interested in trying to study this area and, and try and understand it. And um, a new technique had recently been pioneered in the States to record um, single neurons. So these are tiny little cells about, about the width of a, of a hair, you know, almost invisible. In fact, I guess pretty much invisible to the, to the naked eye. So they're very, very tiny. Um, but to be able to record individual ones of these in animals that were awake and moving around and doing stuff. And that was a really big te technological achievement. We sort of take it for granted now, um, but that was an incredible step forward because up until that time um, to record single neurons, you had to anesthetize an animal and so that it was completely motionless and you would implant these little fine glass electrodes. And that just never worked in, in moving animals because the glass would snap and so on and so on. So these fine wire electrodes really 
um, it, it was kind of like an evolutionary transition in neuroscience, <laughs> really opened the door to a whole bunch of new stuff that we could do. So John O'Keefe was recording from the hippocampus and he um, noted that um, there would be cells that became active when the animal went to a particular part of the environment. And I mean, these are really simple environments. The animals were just walking around on a, on a sort of a tabletop or something. And he was uh, monitoring the activity by listening to, you know, feeding the output of the electrodes through a computer and into a loudspeaker and actually listening to the cells. They make this kind of um, machine gun sound when they're firing at a high rate. And so it was very obvious to him that whenever the rat went into the corner of this uh, tabletop, for example, suddenly one of these cells would become really, really active. And so he published um, some papers in the, in the early 70s. He, he concluded that the cells were representing the location of the animals, so the place. And so he called them place cells. And he proposed, along with Lynn Nadell, who's a neuropsychologist that he was collaborating with. So they, they put together this, this very detailed proposal that the hippocampus has a cognitive map. So this thing that Tolman had suggested might, might be there. <laughs> and everybody said, no, we think that's not something the brain could probably do. Um, but now it looked like maybe, maybe it can do that because there are these cells that seem to know where the animal is. Um, so the place cells, they're, they're kind of sat in the literature for, for quite a long time and, and not very much work was done on them. So most of it was, was by O'Keefe and um, some of his close colleagues who were um, people that he'd known for some time. Um, so colleagues in the States, Bob Muller and Bruce McNaughton and so on. And so there's a relatively small number of, of labs that started to, to work on place cells. Um, oh, and Jim Ronk's lab, I should mention that because he was one of the pioneers of this electrode technique and, and probably possibly the person who kickstarted it. All. <laughs> um, so, th so these labs were working on um, place cells. And the um, skeptics in the neuroscience community said, well, you know, they're interesting and everything, but, you know, maybe these are just stimulus sensitive. You know, these are cells whose job is to uh, just note congregations of stimuli at a, at a particular location. And, and so, so they're multimodal. In other words, they're getting different kinds of sensory information. And it just so happens that one corner of this environment ha has just the right visual inputs and just the right olfactory inputs and just the right everything else that that cell is sensitive to, and that's why it fires it. It's not really to do with place per se, it's to do with integration. So that was a kind of um, competing idea for quite a long time, and it, and it took many years of experimenting to show that, th that that notion couldn't explain the properties of place cells. For example, it, it couldn't explain why the cells still are active in the same place if you turn out all the lights, or if you change the odors that are present, or you know you can change pretty much any aspect of the environment and provided all the all the others are still there <laughs> uh, the cell will still fire there um so so it really seemed like it was um, um to do with the place rather than you know and of course the, the 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 reason that the cell knows that that place is that place is to do with the sensory information that's coming in but it's abstracting the placeness um by by integrating all, all of this information so um, yeah, slowly the, the idea began to gain traction and then new cells were discovered that added weight to this. So for example, uh, Jim Ronk's lab uh, discovered that near the hippocampus, there are cells that become active when the animal faces in a particular direction. Mm. And again, 
this can be shown to be not not dependent on any one simple sensory stimulus that depends on um, a, a kind of a, a confluence of them and um, and he, he also showed and Jeff Talby who worked with him for many years and, and was still working on these cells um, showed that that two very very different types of information can generate the same response in the cells so you can establish the firing direction of the head direction cell by giving the animal familiar um, landmarks that it's seen before. Or you can establish the firing by turning out all the lights, or, uh, you know, getting rid of all of the things that the rat can see and smell and so on, but having the, the animal able to use its own internal sense of direction to sustain that activity. So that all comes from a whole different set of inputs, completely different set of sensory inputs, and yet you get the same output, which is direction. So with, with place cells and direction cells, it was beginning to seem more like this is definitely a map. And then the, um, the third really big discovery, which I think of as the sort of the, the third pillar <laughs> of the three-legged stool of the cognitive map, if you like, um, are these neurons called grid cells that were discovered in the, um, in the new millennium in the 2000s. And these cells were discovered in a region of the brain that sends a lot of inputs to hippocampus. So it's called entorhinal cortex. And it, it provides the majority of the cortical inputs into the hippocampus. So it's a really, really big source of information. So, you know, the intuition for a long time was the place cells must be getting a lot of their information from entorhinal cortex because, you know, so much is coming in through there. So this um, team, this husband and wife team called the Moses, um, started a research program to investigate entorhinal cortex and try and understand what was going on there. And they discovered that there are neurons there which also fire in localized regions of the environment. So whenever the animal goes into a particular place, one of these cells will become active. But um, one of these cells would have lots of places where it likes to be active, not just one or two. It, it would be lots and lots of them. And, and the really important and surprising thing was that these places are related to each other very systematically. So they um, are the same distance apart and they're kind of arranged in rows, very neat rows. So for a given cell, for example, it might fire in a patch that's kind of circular and it's about 30 centimeters across. And then there'll be a gap around that where it doesn't fire, but then 30 centimeters away, there'll be another place where it will fire and, and that will form a circular region about 30 centimeters and so on. And if you record, you know, as the rat explores a, a big area, let's say two meters by two meters, so quite a large area for rat, you can see that this pattern is very, very regular. Um, and so they call these cells grid cells. And um, the immediate kind of <clears throat> implication was that the, the very constant spatial distance between these cells indicates that they are tracking the distance that the animal is moving. So again, this is really spatial. It's not just to do with simple stimulus response associations that the brain is, is forming. It's, it's definitely a spatial thing. Um, so I think for many people, who had been a bit skeptical about the cognitive map theory, the discovery of grid cells really set the seal on it. It's, you, it's, it's not possible to conclude that the brain is not processing space, <laughs> you know, in, in its metric sense of distance and direction, once you know about grid cells. So that's, that's the kind of the, um, the skeleton of, of what's happened in the last 50 years or 100 years, I guess. Um, but it's, you know, 
<clears throat> it's, a, it's a very busy and active field and there's a lot going on right now. I have a few questions about place cells and head direction cells. So is it possible to manipulate the animal's sense of place? So if you gave it similar cues, do you see the same place cell firing? Like if the animal thinks that it's in one place, but actually it's it's not the same place. Yes, that's a that's a really good question. And um, that was one of the first questions that people started to ask about place cells is what happens if you put the animal in a different place or what happens if you change the um, appearance of the place it's in. Um, and one of the people who was very influential in, in this was Bob Muller, who was you know, one of the very early place cell people. And he, um, he did sort of manipulations of the size and shape of environments and so on, and found that um, if you put the animal into a new environment, and it wasn't just his work, I should, I should sort of say that quite a few other labs were, were also sort of looking at what happens if you just put the rat in a different environment. Um, so it was, it was recognized fairly quickly that um, the place cells will fire differently in a different environment. Um, but many of the same cells will still be active, just in different places. So you might have a cell which, which is active when the, when the rat goes into a corner, let's say the southwest corner of a square box. But if you take it out and put it into a, a cylindrical box, it might fire against the north wall or something like that. Whereas there might be another cell that just turns off, it doesn't fire at all on the cylinder. Or another cell that is only active in the cylinder, wasn't active in the square and so on. So it kind of looks like there's, and people have done, they've combed through all of the statistics of this to see if there's any way that you can predict the pattern in the second environment based on the pattern in the first environment. Uh, and there is, there is no similarity that um, has been determined. So it just looks like a random new map. And so it's called remapping, meaning the system is just generating a new map for this new environment. So then there's the question of, well, what happens if you change the original environment? And here it gets a little bit complicated because it depends on how much of a change you make and what you change. So if you just um, make some relatively minor changes, then, then more or less nothing happens. The play cells just, just keep doing their thing. If you, if you make changes sufficiently large, let's say the box changes in color from all white to all black, then even though it's in other respects the same box and it's the same place in the room and so on, um, the cells might remap. So they might decide that this is a new environment and make a new map. Sometimes they don't, um, and it depends on the animal. So it's as if different animals, their hippocampuses have, have come to a different decision. Um, and what, what I found when I started um, playing around with this, making some really subtle changes, is that you can sometimes get some of the cells to remap and some of them not to remap. And it's there, it's sort of as if the system is in two minds about whether this is a new environment or not. Mm. And, you know, through studying remapping over many years now, I think the community is collectively concluding that one of the functions of the hippocampus is to process all of this information and to decide is this a new environment or is this a familiar environment that's changed? So do I need a new map or do I stick with my original map? Um, and that may be one of the important functions of the hippocampus is to parcelate um, the environment. And maybe not just the environment, but people are now also thinking in terms of time and thinking maybe it's also to do with parcelating time into these discrete kind of um, chunks. 
and and within one of those chunks so within a room or maybe within an episode of a of, you know of your daily life or something like that um you've got one particular map and the place cells will be doing one particular type of thing and um your memories that are being in, related to that map or will attach to that particular map and then when you go out of that space and into a different one um, then you've got a, a new set of place cells and you can attach memories to this new map and that stops the memories from uh, getting confused between each other so you, you keep it kind of keeping them in the place where they belong if you like. So if you have the rat in the one environment and then you move it to another environment it remaps but if you move it back to the first environment do you get the same map originally? Yes. Yeah, you get you get the original map. Okay. Um, more more or less all the time. The, the one exception is that um, Carol Barnes, who's um, a researcher who studies aging, has found that you can sometimes get instability in very old rats where they make a make a new map even for a familiar space. So there's a bit of instability. Mm. Um, but that seems to be the system starting to fail. It's not mm. normally the system would would tend to create the original map. Mm. I suppose the other caveat is that this is this is true over relatively short timescales, so within a few days. But now we've got new technology that enables people to study quite large numbers of cells over a long period of time, like days and days or weeks. And it's actually been found that there is a slight turnover that increases the more time has gone past. So if you take the rat out of the environment and put it immediately back in, you'll get the same cells active. But if you put it back in like three weeks later, some of the cells will have the same, um, what we call firing fields, the places where they fire, um, but other cells will have different ones. And then if you wait six weeks, even more of them will have changed and so on. And um, if we only had our old fashioned wire electrodes, we might have just thought we were losing some cells. But now with these modern imaging methods where you can see with a little microscope all of the cells, we can see that cells aren't dying. They've just stopped being active. They're still there. They can, they can be activated in some other environment, but in this environment, they've stopped being active. And there's this really interesting idea about what this is for, which is that it's a way of incorporating time elapsed time into your map so if you if it's a really long time since you were last in a place only a few of your place cells will still be telling you that it's that place and so the memory will feel to you kind of weak mm. whereas if you were just in there five minutes ago your memory for that place will be super strong because all of the place cells are active. so it's a way of kind of telling you how long ago is it since you were last here and so you know the the hypothesis which I quite like is that this is kind of a sort of a clock a, a way of um, incorporating time into the spatial map but we don't know for sure yet yeah that's really interesting it's also really interesting that like in v1 you have retinotopic mappings um, but so for the hippocampus like are these place cells like the mapping is arbitrary yes yeah um and that was, I think at the very beginning, that was a slight surprise, but it rapidly became, as soon as really as remapping was, um, was noted, we began to realize that um, this is not the same kind of representation because in V1, um, you're, the, the cells there are only really trying to represent one space, which is the retina. Um, and that, that's gonna be that one space for the animal's entire life. 
So you can have a hard wiring where you've got one cell for one place in the retina, essentially, you know, obviously with a bit of redundancy, but, you know, and, and cells that are um, next to each other in the retina will project to cells that are next to each other in the visual cortex, and that keeps everything nice and, and simple, and it makes sense. For space in the real world that the animal is moving through, there isn't one map, there's, there's millions of possible maps. And so, you know, you can't just use the, the one wiring scheme, you have to have a flexible wiring scheme. And so the hippocampus provides this flexible wiring. It's, it's what we call a combinatorial code, where the important thing is not, um, not the act activity of an individual cell, but the activity of um, a population of cells at that point. Um, that's what tells you where you are and possibly when you are. Mm. Sorry. And for grid cells, so if grid cells fire as a function of where the animal is, then like surely like where do they get that information from like how does the animal know that it has moved to another part of the same grid yeah that's the 60 64 million dollar question <laughs> um well we we are pretty sure that um that the cells are using what we call self-motion information which has been studied for a long time in, in the context of navigation and it, this is information that derives from moving through space. So when you're moving through space, so, so if, if, for example, you're moving through space under your own volition, so you've decided I'm going, I'm going to walk, you've got all sorts of um, information that tells you that you are walking. One of them is that you issued a command to your legs to walk and they, and they obeyed. <laughs> so that information. Um, is available to your brain. It's called motor efference copy. So I issued a motor command and, and I'm telling the rest of my brain that I've done that. So expect some movement signals to come through. Then you've got the vestibular organ, which is the organ in the inner ear that detects whether you're accelerating through space. Um, and so it's able to indicate to, you, to the rest of your brain that you are moving through space. Um, you've got the the visual flow of the world moving past your eyes, so what we call optic flow, um, that is another movement signal. And if, if all is well, that will um, correlate very highly with the vestibular signal. So the optic flow will be giving you a signal that you're moving forwards, and your vestibular system will be giving you a signal that you're moving forwards, and so you can conclude that you're moving forwards with some confidence. Um, and then there are some other things, like the, the changing position of landmarks, um, you can, um, in theory, use those to kind of constantly update where you think you've got to in space and so on. So, so we think, and there's quite a lot of evidence now, people are starting to test these sources of information individually um, by, by doing what we call conflict experiments, where you change them with respect to each other and see which one the cells follow. So for example, you can put a rat on a treadmill and you can start the treadmill running so that the speed of the rat through the physical environment doesn't quite match, you know, from the vestibular signal, doesn't quite match what the optic flow system is telling it and so on, and, and its legs are telling it something different and so on. So you can kind of play around with these sources of information. Um, and so, and the, and the conclusion seems to be that the grid cells use all sorts of things. So you, if you differentially manipulate these different components, you get, um, you, you pretty reliably get effects on the, the grid cells spacing. Mm. So they're they're receiving this information and, and we don't fully yet know where that's coming from. So uh, where 
what you know what is the place in the brain that's putting this information together is it the grid cells themselves like are they getting independent optic flow signals and vestibular signals and, and landmark signals and so on or is that ha happening somewhere else and being turned into a speed signal which is then passed into the entorhinal cortex um my money is on the first that that the entorhinal cortex is doing the integration but um in fact it's it's quite possibly more than one system because things like this there's often a lot of redundancy because there's such important types of information so um, yeah that's an active unfolding area right now and i think i've heard somewhere that uh like if you if the animal isn't in a regular square that it's in some triangular room then the grid cells like the grid is sort of distorted is that true that is true and, and so this was an experiment by Yulia uh, Krupich um, and John O'Keefe and colleagues and they recorded in a um, in a in an apparatus that is sort of more or less like a rectangle except it's squashed at one end so it's actually a trapezoid shape so it's much narrower at one end than the other and they found that the grid cell pattern was a little bit distorted so it's a little bit um, slightly compressed at the narrow end. Um, and a similar um, experiment came out of the Moser lab um, and showed again that if you um, if you deform the environment you can deform the grid a little bit. So, so these experiments were um, in naive animals, in other words ones that didn't have preconceptions about what these environments would be like. So that suggests that um, that there may be an, an effect of the boundaries, the shape of the boundaries on the structure of the grid. So it's not just purely about self-motion information. It's also about the kind of structure of the boundaries. Um, a slight caveat to that is that I think, you know, that the rats grew up in rectangular cages. <laughs> so I guess it's possible that the grid system you know, it's kind of configured to expect rectilinear environments. So maybe there was a um, there was a bias in the in the inputs. But I but I think it's also just possible that uh, it's just you know the more the more that I study grid cells, the more I think that the regularity of the pattern is not um, is not a natural thing for a grid cell. Mm. I think that the importance of the pattern is not the regularity of it, but the, the spacing. Um, and the kind of property that each blob, like each place where the cell is active, is surrounded by empty space. Right. I suspect that that's the important thing about grid cells. You know, the exact symmetry of the pattern, um, it, it, it happens if the environment is very symmetrical and the animal's behavior is very, very homogeneous within that space, but it's not important for what grid cells are doing. So I, I'm not sure that that's a widely held view, but that's, that's what I think. Right. <laughs> Do you have any intuition for why why does it not have to be regular? Like it seems to be solving the same problem either ways. Yeah, I think so. I started to come to this view from a few observations. One is that when when we record grid cells, even in a nice regular environment, we sometimes see distorted grids. Sometimes there'll be a um, so, so the canonical pattern is such that every place where the cell fires, so every firing field, is surrounded by six others 
So that's that's just the natural pattern that you get when you uh, put circular things together and try and pack them together as closely as possible. So it's called hexagonal close packed. So the canonical pattern and the one that you always see in the papers is this hexagonal pattern. Um, but we would often see, for example, the, there would be a, a field that had only five other fields around it. So there would, or there'd be six, but one of them would be slightly displaced and a bit small or manky or something like that. So, so the grid would just be um, imperfect. And then we started to kind of play around with the environments a bit more. And, and one of the things we did was to add another dimension so that now the, the animal could move in three dimensions instead of only two. And we found that that messed up the grid, um, the regularity of the grid pattern completely. But it did preserve this basic property that each place where the cell fires is surrounded by um, a, a quiet zone where the cell doesn't fire. That persisted. Um, and there's a few other bits and pieces, weird other um, experiments we've tried that we never published that, that also found that the grid is really very fragile. But the property that firing is surrounded by empty space where, where a cell doesn't fire, that's very robust. So I've concluded that that's what they're for. Mainly that's that's their most important function, um, which is not to say that they're not involved in, in mapping distances. I'm sure that one of the uh, consequences that's used by the, the system is to help the animal track how far it's gone. But I, I don't think it's likely to do this in a really precise way. I think it's a kind of a looser way because normally when an animal is, is living its life, you know, if you look at what rats do, they don't wander around these big open spaces and have to precisely localize things in, in an otherwise unmarked location. Um, they're in very cluttered environments and they often have these very stereotypical routes through the environment and they mark places by features like there's that tree and I know that near that tree is the rubbish dump where the people put the rubbish and I can go and get food you know, <laughs> or something. So they're using landmarks. So yeah, so I, so, so, but I'm curious to know why, uh, why the system has evolved this pattern of um, activity surrounded by empty space. I feel that that probably has an important function and um, I'm curious about what that is. And another question I wanted to ask was, so how do we create maps of like different scales? So I can create a spatial map of my, the room I'm in right now, but I also sort of have a spatial map of the city I live in. So how, like, um, is it the same principles at play? Yeah, very, very good question. So um, it's one that I've been thinking about quite a lot. So, so the notion of scale, there's, there's, two, um, there's two kind of sub questions. So you could talk about the scale of a single compartment. So, so you know, how big is the room that I'm in now? Or, you know, if I'm sitting in the desert, how big is that space? <laughs> and to, you know, what would happen to my grid and place cells if I was in a big open space or, or even a football field or something like that, something that's much bigger. Um, and in that, on that question, we um, are just beginning to explore that now. So there's been a few experiments with rats looking at what place cells and grid cells do um, if you just have the rat in a single space, but it's much bigger. Um, and it looks like the pattern um, does sort of the same thing, which is to say there are big place fields and small space fields, place fields. If you've got a bigger environment, you can have bigger place fields. Um, you can also have more place fields. So in a fairly small environment, a typical place cell will only have one place field, whereas if the environment is much bigger, um, you, 
the cells will typically have more fields because there's more space for them and so on. Um, so, so it sort of look, looks like the statistics of the large environments are, are, are sort of what you might expect. And then there's a group in Israel who have been studying really large distances using flying bats. So this is Nakam Ulanovsky and, and his team, and they have developed um, methods for recording without, um, without a tether. So normally in a laboratory, uh, we have a, a little physical wire that takes the signals from the animal to the computer. It's just the simplest way to do it. But they've been recording wirelessly from bats that can sometimes fly really long distances. And they find, again, that the map kind of scales that there are some place cells that have enormous fields and, and um, there are, I'm not sure if they've done grid cells over huge spaces, but the Moser lab, you know, the people who discovered grid cells have recorded along um, 18 meters and found that you can, in, in the very deep regions of entorhinal cortex where the grid cells have really big uh, spacings, um, you can get spacings of sometimes meters long. So, so there appears to be the capacity to encode these singular spaces at these multiple different scales. But then the second way of thinking about scale is um, a multi-compartmented space. So I'm in a room, but that room is in a house, that house is in a street, that street is in a suburb, the yeah. suburb is in a city, and so on and so on and so on. And we don't really know much about that hierarchical organization um, within the cognitive map. We, we um, feel that it's there because studies of humans suggest that there's this hierarchical uh, organization. But we don't know what um, place cells and grid cells are doing in, in that hierarchical scheme of encoding, or whether they're even involved or whether they're just involved in encoding the space that you're in right now. So, so you know, when I think about the city that I'm in, do I use my place cells even, or do I use something else? Um, and that's, that's a question we don't really have the answer to yet. I suspect we use place cells in conjunction with some higher level uh, organizing part of the brain, like prefrontal cortex or something like that, that kind of um, understands the relationship of these places to each other. But we're just beginning to explore those questions now. Mm. And you know, do you have any intuition behind how can we create so many spatial maps without them interfering with each other? Um, well, I think the, the, the kind of most obvious intuition is just that combinatorial encoding gives you huge capacity. Um, so, you know, if, if your encoding of a place involves some particular combination of place cells, given how many place cells we have, like hundreds of thousands of them, and let's say you only need, you know, 100 to encode, or maybe you even only need 10 or, or possibly even one, although that's less likely, but you know, you don't need very many place cells to encode a place and you've got hundreds of thousands to choose from. And so you've, you've got sort of infinitely many kind of possibilities, if you like, um, for, for encoding. But, but encoding is very sparse. So it, so it means, yes, that, well, so, so for any particular place in the environment, it's sparse, yes. So, so there are only a few cells that are active of the 100,000 available. Um, but there is a, a sort of a, so, so in theory, you know, you could encode for, for practical purposes an infinite number of places, but there is also the problem of how you um, retrieve that information if you want to retrieve a memory and say, okay, this is this place as opposed to that place. 
Um, and there the, um, the kind of theoretical issues get a little bit thornier, like how do you um, get out of a network um, two different representations that aren't interfering with each other. Um, and I, um, I don't know what the, what the theoretical limits are. I know that they have been calculated in the past, but I think as we, as we learn more about the properties of these networks, that the, the answer is probably changing. Um, so, I don't, so I don't know what the theoretical limits are, but I think it's likely that there are theoretical limits and that uh, as, as an animal ages, interference between memories and interference between places starts to become a possibility. And that may be why um, we start to see things like the instability of place cell representations in, in aged animals. And certainly, you know, I just, just purely subjectively, I find that as I age, I start to feel that there's interference in my memories. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have so many more memories now than, than I had when I was young. Um, and I'm still quite capable of forming a memory that's clearly differentiated. But when I start to think back over my accumulated store of memories, I sometimes find it harder and harder to retrieve specific ones. So I think, you know, just based on that, um, there probably are practical limits. And I suspect that the practical limit um, is the one that just slightly exceeds the lifetime of the animal. So in other words, um, we've got as many place cells as we need to support the number of memories we are likely to need to be able to distinguish within our own normal lifetimes. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense for evolution to build more capacity than that, because what would be the driving force? You know, what would be the, yeah. the adaptive value of that yeah. for the reproductive success of the animal? So, um, yeah. so yes, I think that, to, to get back to your original question, I think there are capacity limits, but probably not ones that we need to actively really worry about. Um, and like if there are like hundreds of thousands of place cells like experimentally how do we find the ones that are active well so and and although there are potentially you know these large numbers in any one environment so let's say a quite a large environment that an animal can explore only about half of the cells or maybe it's less than that um, will be active anywhere in that environment um, for a particular place, so for where I'm sitting right now, for example, um, that's a that's a much smaller subset again. So you know I've got a place cell for the part of the room that I'm not in right now, so that cell is not active, and so on and so on. So um, so it turns out, and you know it's fortunate because otherwise it would have been difficult to make these discoveries. But it turns out that few enough cells are active in any one place that they stand out above the background, and you can isolate them and study their properties. And, um, and that's something that, you know, that has been really um, an important um, an important thing because there are many parts of the brain where you try and record and you just find that all of the cells seem to be active all of the time and it's difficult to get a handle on, therefore, what they're doing. Whereas the sparse activity, relatively speaking, of place cells has meant we've been able to start to get a handle on what a given cell is sensitive to. So that's been useful. But when you do like single cell recordings, you don't know whether that cell will be active in the particular environment, right? Yes. Well, so when you put an electrode into the brain, it ends up sitting near quite a few cells. So maybe, right. so within, I mean, the, it, it, 
most clearly detects action potentials from the cells that are nestled right next to the electrode. And there might be maybe a few dozen of those, um, but it can also detect action potentials from slightly further away. They'll be a little bit smaller. You know. so, so I think um, there are enough place cells active in a given place that an electrode that's in the hippocampus will have no difficulty detecting quite a few. But similarly, not so mm. many that it becomes impossible to distinguish which action potentials come from which cells. So it's really nicely balanced. And I think it was a fortunate you know, accident <laughs> that, the, that these um, early experiments on freely moving animals landed in hippocampus where this is true and, and gave us quickly a handle um, that, that we, you know, on something that we could, we could work with. It's, we've tended to kind of spend a lot of, of our attention and energy on place cells, partly because they do seem to be really important, but also partly because they are so nice and easy to record um, as we try and venture away from place cells and into other parts of cortex, we find that it gets a little bit more challenging. But fortunately, we've now got some tools to, um, to kind of meet those challenges. So the computers are much faster, can handle much larger amounts of data. We've got new analysis techniques that can pull out um, multivariate activity. So there might be cells in other parts of the brain that are sensitive to a conjunction of a whole bunch of things. And we wouldn't have known how to, how to find that out in the early days, but we now know how to, how to find that out. So um, yeah, the, the, the methods are getting more sophisticated, but also the questions are getting harder. So let's talk about 3D space. Um, so our world is in 3D. Um, so do place cells and grid cells also represent this third dimension? Yeah, that's, um, that's something I've been interested in for quite a long time. Um, because it wasn't, wasn't a, a foregone conclusion that they would be, because you know, many animals, including ourselves and, and rats to some extent, live, live mainly on the surface of the environment that we're in. So you know, we occasionally go up and down stairs, but mostly we're walking around on the flat. And occasionally we go up and down hills, but you know, again, we, we try not to do that. <laughs> um, and even then, you know, a hill is kind of a surface. So it's possible that the place cell map was is really only a surface map. It's really only two-dimensional. Um, but then there's also compelling arguments that say that, well, you know, we do go into the third dimension. Rats climb trees, monkeys climb trees, fish swim, and we were all evolved from, from you know, a fish in our evolutionary ancestry. So maybe the natural form of a map is three-dimensional. Um, and we are just sampling two dimensions when we record place cells from an animal that's walking around on the floor. But maybe if we could get the animal into the third dimension, we would see this other uh, dimension equally well encoded. So that's the kind of opposite extreme. And then there are the intermediate possibilities that there is a, there is a three dimensional map, but the dimension that we don't vis visit so much is not as well encoded and so on. So we started thinking about these questions a few years ago and started because we were you know, expert in recording rats and not very good at recording bats or fish or anything else. We, we thought, okay, let's try and get rats into the third dimension. And we did some um, initial experiments where the animals were walking on a surface, but a surface that extends into the vertical dimension. Um, so for example, um, climbing um, on pegs over, over a climbing wall or walking up a spiral staircase, so or, or a spiral track, so that you know at any one moment the animal is standing on a horizontal surface, but it's very slightly tilted, 
and and as yet as the rat goes round and round and round, it slowly goes higher and higher and higher in vertical space. And, and the question is, would the place cells be? Um, would they have the the same kind of focal location of activity in vertical space that they have in horizontal space? Mm. So we found we recorded place cells and grid cells, and we found that place cells did what we expected, which was to have um, focal limits to their extent in vertical space as well as horizontal space in both of these apparatuses, so both on the climbing wall, which, which we called the pegboard because, because the animal's standing on these pegs, um, and on the um, helical track. So in both of those apparatuses, the place cells would form, you could think of it as kind of globules, if you like, in, in three-dimensional space, except at any one moment, the, the rat's only in one part of the globule. But if you kind of draw the boundaries of everywhere in that space where the cell is active, it forms this three-dimensional ovoid kind of shape, if you like. The grid cells, on the other hand, really surprised us because we thought if the place cells are able to map space in the vertical dimension, as it looks like they do, then that means that the grid cells are probably doing that too. But actually, we found that they weren't. They were still mapping out the horizontal component of space in these apparatuses, but um, not the vertical component. So for example, on the pegboard, the pattern that we saw was vertical stripes. So there would be in, along the horizontal um, axis, if you like, of the pegboard, there would be a region of activity and then a gap and then another region of activity and, and then another gap and so on, just like they, they always do on the horizontal. But in vertical space, they um, they were just either always active or always not active. So um, the place in horizontal coordinates where there was activity, there would be activity at every vertical location in that place. And the place mm. in the horizontal coordinates mm. where there wasn't activity, there would never be activity in that vertical um, dimension. Um, so the consequences was that you would get these kind of stripes on the pegboard. And that was also true on the helical track. Um, there would be these kind of columns of either activity or not activity you know? and so so we started to think maybe the maybe the grid cells aren't interested in vertical space but the place cells are so the first first thing was well how to explain that because we thought that the grid cells were telling the place cells where to be active that made us reconsider that and then subsequently or at around about the same time other evidence from other labs came along suggesting that actually the place cells um, can do their thing without grid cells to some extent. So, so this, that was consistent. Um, but so then we thought, well, do grid cells really not care about vertical space? Well, that seemed a little odd. So then we tried redesigning our apparatus a little bit. And one of the things we did was to persist with recording on a wall, but instead of having the animal on pegs where its body is horizontal, we now had it on chicken wire so the chicken wire is kind of laid over the surface of the wall and the animal has to cling to the chicken wire. So now its body is flat against the wall instead of um, at right angles standing on pegs. So the animal's body is no longer right. horizontal, it's now vertical. This is very hard to explain in words, by the way. <laughs> this is where you really need, need um, vision to explain it. But, but you, know, yeah. you can imagine this rat that's kind of clinging to a, a wall for dear life with, with all four of its limbs and its body um, its stomach is flat against the wall, so vertical instead of horizontal. And now we found, if the rat roams over the surface, that we now see a grid pattern of sorts. So we see the circular regions 
where the cell is active, just like we would see in horizontal space. But there was a really important difference. Well, there were two important differences. One is that the size of that region was very much larger on the wall than it was for the same cell on the floor. So we knew that different cells might have different sizes of these firing fields, but we'd never seen variation in the size for a, for a given cell. But now here we were seeing on the floor when the animal's body is, is horizontal, there is a small firing field. So the size of that circle is quite small, maybe 20, 30 centimeters, but on the wall, it's much huger, maybe half a meter or so. Um, but also the region of empty space around that firing field was also much bigger. In fact, it was so big that we couldn't even tell whether the grid pattern would persist because um, our apparatus wasn't big enough. Everything had gotten so much bigger, we couldn't see enough firing fields to tell whether they would make a regular pattern or not. So that was a bit of a surprise. It, it, it sort of suggested that the grid cells, that they're, they're doing some type of distance tracking because they're able to make these round firing fields with space um, and then another field and so on. So clearly they're able to track the path of the rat. And there's no difference in the um, scale of the horizontal component of that wall versus the vertical component. Um, so, you know, clearly something is able to track distance in, the, in this interrhinal system. But um, the lead author on this, Giulio Casales, my PhD student who was, who was doing this work, he did a really detailed analysis of some of the other signals in the interrhinal cortex. And he found that the speed signal, which we um, know from, from work from the Moser group, the speed signal that's in there um, was reduced. So it was much what we, what we call kind of blunter, um, you know, just less sensitive than on the horizontal surface that the animals normally walk on. So it's as if the interrhinal cortex is not getting enough information about speed. It, it, in, a, in a way, it's as if it thinks the rat's going slower than it really is. And so that was our interpretation for why everything is bigger. So the rat, because the, the brain thinks the rat's walking more slowly, um, the rat has to walk for a longer time to cover the same amount of space. And actually, because the rat actually isn't walking more slowly, that means it's actually covered more space. <laughs> and so the space field has gotten bigger. I don't know if, if that makes sense, but we've, I guess the simple way of saying it is that we've kind of uncoupled space and time. Um, and that's that's why the, um, the firing fields were expanded. So making the rats climb upwards like that leads to the uncoupling of space and time? Yes. So when the animal is walking around on a vertical surface, its speed processing is reduced. So the rat is moving at a particular speed, but the brain thinks it's moving more slowly. So let's say it's moving at one meter per second, but the brain only thinks it's moving at half a meter per second. In one second, the rat will have covered a meter, but the brain thinks it's only covered half a meter. And so the grid cell thinks, ah, you know, I'm supposed to fire um, at the beginning and the end of this second, because I'm, I think I'm going at a meter per second. And the, sorry, I think I'm going at half a meter per second. And I'm supposed to be a half a meter sized grid field. <laughs> but actually, the rat had covered a meter. And so the grid field accidentally had become right. a meter. That's the kind of hand waving way of explaining that. So, so, that, so we're basically saying that the scale is distorted on, on the wall. So that was, that was slightly kind of puzzling because um, on the one hand, it's suggesting that there is encoding of 
vertical space, but on the other hand, the metric properties are different from horizontal. So how do you reconcile those two things for a space that's completely three-dimensional? And so we did that experiment and, and we um, had to solve quite a lot of technical challenges to be able to get rats to move in fully three-dimensional space. Um, so I hired a, a postdoc called Roddy Greaves who set to work solving these technical challenges. So it was really kind of complicated to uh, train rats to move through a lattice. So a, a kind of a network of bars that, that the rat can climb on. So this was an apparatus that was actually designed by Alexey Malikic, who was um, one of the authors on the pegboard paper where we saw the stripes. So he had started to think about this th three-dimensional you know, volumetric problem. And, and he built this thing and showed that rats can navigate through it. So when Roddy arrived in the lab, he solved the problem of recording wirelessly so that we didn't have the problem of the cable tangling up in the space. And he also solved the problem of having multiple cameras so that they could pinpoint the location of the animal in three dimensions instead of two. I put those two things together and recorded place cells and grid cells. Um, really kind of um, technically amazing piece of work. And, um, and we found results that um, are both consistent with our kind of previous work, but also um, invites in new thinking. So the consistency is that we saw globular place fields like we had seen on the pegboard and on the helical track, confirming that in volumetric space, the brain can also track um, you know, the, the location of the animal in three-dimensional space. So that was, that was nice. There, and there was a sl slight elongation of the place fields, but not by very much. Um, he also found that, um, okay, okay, by elongation, there's, there's two, two components to that. So place fields are almost always elongated, actually, even, even on horizontal space. Hmm. But the amount of elongation was only very slightly increased in this three-dimensional environment. But he also found that the elongation, which we, you know, which is typical for a place field, so more often than not oval rather than spherical, um, that elongation tended to lie along the, um, the corridors, if you like, in this lattice. So they were slightly constrained by the structure of the apparatus. So that was kind of interesting because there's no obvious reason why that would be. And it started making us think about the the way that the structure of space can constrain the map that's formed. So, that, so that's, what, that's what he found with place cells. But then with grid cells, we kind of didn't know what we were going to find because, you know, Julio's experiments on the climbing wall had suggested that fields might be bigger. The experiments on horizontal space suggested that they should be smaller. The experiments on the pegboard had suggested that maybe they'll form stripes, maybe there's maybe maybe they can't track vertical space at all. Um, so um, we, we thought we don't know what we're going to find. This is, this is kind of exciting. Let's see what we get. <laughs> and what, what he found was that the, the firing is um, blobby. So it's definitely, or at least almost always not stripes. There was actually one rat <laughs> where the, the, the fields formed almost stripes or in fact columns because it's in three dimensions. But so they didn't seem to kind of be tracking the, the vertical dimension at all. But in all of the other rats, the fields were um, globular. So they were constrained to regions in this three dimensional space. 
but the um, globules were different sizes. So unlike ordinary firing fields on a surface where the fields are the same size, the firing fields were more variable in size. And most importantly, there was no regularity. So although each firing field was surrounded by a quiet zone, just like we see in every, you know, in every other apparatus, um, the location of the firing fields was essentially random. And he did a million different analyses to see whether there was any hidden regularity in there at all, um, hidden sort of suggestion that there was a grid in there trying to get out of you like couldn't see anything like that. It just looked like um, the brain had just randomly thrown a whole lot of the locations into that space and said, yeah, fire, fire there, but fire only in a restricted region <laughs> and then stop if you get away from that. So, so we're left sort of scratching our heads a little bit about that. It's one of the reasons I think that grid cells are more about finding discrete regions of space than they are about the specific regularity and symmetry. I think that they probably are to some extent about tracking distance, but I no longer think it's really um, precise in the way that we thought when we first saw the really regular grid pattern back in 2005. My feeling is that the um, precision of the spatial tracking breaks down in a complex or a large space like this. It really only works in a, in a fairly small space. And you know that precision might be for allowing an animal to accurately localize itself in a small region, like a room or you know a box or something. But once it gets out into the big wide world, uh, that really fine grained level of precision is no longer uh, as important or may maybe it's just not sustainable. Maybe it just can't be done, it's too difficult. Right, that's really fascinating. I have a few questions. So, so something that was really interesting was that there's individual differences with this. So that one rat that had columns, was this something that you expected that the these spatial maps are like not even just the shape, like this, not even just um, where the grid fields are, but the shape is also that there can be individual differences with that. Yes, I um, I think I, I wasn't fully surprised. And the reason is, thinking back to the, the days when I was studying remapping, right. we would um, quite often see, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, we'd quite often see, for example, a situation where the cells in one rat wouldn't remap, even though in all the other rats mm -hmm. they remapped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in the partial situation where some cells would remap and some wouldn't, the, you know, the amount, the proportion of those would vary between animals. And some cells, almost all of the cells would remap and, and others, almost all of them wouldn't. And then there'd be some in the middle and so on. And, and there's all sorts of um, evidence from other studies too, suggesting that there are individual differences in, um, in the way that place cells are responding to changes in the environment. And I think it's because a lot of the information that's coming into place cells is determined by attention. So, so the, the animal's attention to cues. So some cells, some animals might just not really care, for example, what's in the box beyond, like what's in the room beyond the box. Maybe it's a very hungry rat that only cares about the food and it's not looking beyond the walls. And so it hasn't noticed that the box has moved, for example. Whereas another rat 
maybe it's more anxious and it's attending to everything and it's looking around and going, gosh, there's a room outside this box. And so those that information is finding its way to the place cells. And so if you move the box within the room, the cells will respond. So, so I think it's quite possible that there are some rats that are sensitive to having climbed up through this lattice and therefore they're processing the distance. Maybe it's a rat that's afraid of heights <laughs> or just, you know, I don't know, a rat that likes to climb and is going, oh, God, I'm climbing, this is fun, versus another rat that doesn't really care, it's more interested in the, in the malt paste and, and it's not really paying attention and so on. So I think it's, it's consistent with other stuff. There's, these are high-level cognitive representations, and so we would expect to start to see individual variability because there are so many places along the sensory processing pathway where variability could be introduced. So, um, mm. yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's interesting, but not that surprising. Right. And another thing I found super cool was you mentioned being able to record these neural activity wirelessly. I don't know if that was possible. So, like, how does that work? So this it's quite it's quite tricky because you need a little bit of a little bit more hardware on the animal's head instead of putting that the hardware in the computer. Um, so there's, there's two ways you can do it. One is to fit a little radio transmitter onto the um, head that is able to, and you need a little bit of intelligence to, um, to pick off the, the sort of um, the signals from the electrodes, turn that, you know, digitize that and, and send it through the air. Um, and then it gets picked up by a receiver and then stored you know, in the computer. So that's the method that um, that Roddy used. It's called telemetry, and you know, because of the tele kind of component of it. The other method is to actually um, have a memory chip in the intelligence that's on the head and store the data locally. And then at the end of the experiment, you can take the memory chip out and put that in the in the reader, in the memory card reader, and so on. Um, so, so sorry, memory card. So. That's, that's the method that um, I think Nakam Olonovsky is using with the bats that are flying long distances. So, so storing, you know, storing this information on the animal. Um, so you can, you can do either of those. You know, it's getting easier now to store bigger amounts of data on, on the animal. And I think in future, we will probably switch to that because uh, telemetry has a few challenges when you're trying to get these signals through the air past all of the metal and all of the other stuff that you have in a typical laboratory can be tricky. <laughs> and how ethologically relevant is are these rats like in their behavior on these 3D lattices? Um, so, well, you can argue it either way, really, <laughs> depending, depending on, on, on how you look at it. So in some ways, it's more ecologically relevant than being just in a flat open arena because you know, as, as we mentioned before, the real environment is three-dimensional. Rats may often be climbing trees. I was actually surprised. I didn't think rats climbed trees. But when I, um, when I dug into it, it, it transpires that they do. And also their burrow systems are quite tree-like, except that they're corridors rather than branches. But they have a, a similar branching structure that extends in, in three dimensions. So to have animals move through three dimensions um, is, is somewhat e ecologically relevant. But that you know we were using a very regular apparatus to, to make the analysis easy and, and to some extent that's not very natural and also you know rats 
in the wild wouldn't normally venture out into the open. You know, whereas in the laboratory, our rats, they've been bred for many, many generations to be quite low in anxiety and, and they're very tame. Um, they, they're quite like working with humans and, and so on. So, you know, you have to treat the results from laboratory studies with caution. You know, there are, they tell you some things, but they don't tell you everything. So, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is doing some slightly more ethological experiments and finding out how these cells normally behave in a, in a more natural environment. Yeah, how, how could we possibly study them in a more ethological way? Well, people are starting to do this. So one of the things that's different about our rats from normal rats is that normal rats live in social colonies. Right. Yeah. Um, and that really changes their behavior quite a lot. It's, it's a little bit technically tricky to do that with a physiological experiment because, you know, we have to implant some hardware on, on the animals that they live with mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And if a rat encounters another rat with hardware on it, it tends to try and gnaw at, at the hardware because <laughs> I'm not sure whether it's part of a grooming thing or if it's just that rats like to chew on hard things and, and you know they're curled up in their little dens or their cages at night they they chew on each other's implants and so you know we've always had to keep rats um, sep separated for these recordings um, so solving that is a challenge but I think people starting to do this now to, to think about how to record in, in social environments and um, and place cells have some interesting social properties so uh, a couple of groups have shown that um, place cells in so one experiment was in, in bats and one in rats um, have shown that there are some place cells that become active when a rat sees another rat in a particular place so that's very interesting and suggests that maybe this system is, is interested in, in kind of more multi-dimensional type of spatial encoding than, than we might have appreciated. And the other line of work that's been interesting is that there are, there's one region of the hippocampus where there seem to be cells that are very interested in social stimuli. So, um, you know, interested in, in sort of socially relevant things like familiar versus unfamiliar. Um, odors of conspecifics and so on. So, um, so that's, you know, I, I think the social neuroscience of this is quite interesting. But also this thing that we were talking about before about the more structured space and how is, how is the spatial map organized in a more hierarchical manner. I think that's a whole line of investigation that's waiting to open up. Do you think grid cells might be, like, could they also be mapping not just physical space, but also like social space, as you mentioned, or maybe even like other arbitrary spaces. So, for example, Tim Barron's had an exam had an experiment uh, that showed that there was grid cell like activity for arbitrary dimensions, like a bird space, which was just something that was relevant to solve the task. Uh, so, do you think that grid cells might have a larger role? In, in in more arbitrary spaces like mapping knowledge? Yes, I um, I don't know what I think about that. <laughs> I, I think it's a very interesting idea uh, and very intriguing experiments. So in these experiments, um, which have been done on humans, 
not not animals. So it's not actually possible to, or at least it's not easy to record um, entorhinal neurons in humans. People are starting to do this now in humans that are um, exploring virtual environments. So that, so epilepsy patients who have electrodes implanted in entorhinal cortex and hippocampus, um, it's it's possible to uh, record grid-like activity as people explore a virtual space. But most of the experiments on humans have involved functional neuroimaging. And here, you're not looking at the activity of individual neurons, you're looking at the activity of the population. And so you're not recording a grid. What you are recording um, is the symmetry properties of activation as people move around in some type of virtual space. So, you know, I mentioned before that the, um, the natural pattern of grid cells or the canonical pattern that everybody loves is this hexagonal pattern where each uh, firing field is surrounded by six others. So that, that means that as a subject is moving through space, there's a six-fold symmetry in the, um, in the statistics of how they encounter places where the cells should be active, if you like. And by six-fold symmetry, I mean every um, sort of 60 degrees pattern recurs. And so it's possible to see that a six-fold symmetric pattern in the activation of an entorhinal cortex when you're doing functional neuroimaging. So that's not the same as seeing a grid, but um, it's an inference that can be made that it's reflecting a grid. So, so just to be cautious that there is this level of indirection there, you're kind of making some inferences. But this um, six-fold symmetric pattern, what they call a hexadirectional pattern, has been seen in people who explore virtual um, real space, if you like, like space, you know, space that we move through, virtual environments. But it's also been seen in people who are doing cognitive tasks, the structure of which is laid out in two dimensions, in, in two continuous dimensions. So real space in horizontal, um, and the horizontal plane is two-dimensional and the dimensions are continuous, like you move smoothly through the space. So in these other more abstract spaces, similarly, there are two dimensions that are orthogonal to each other. So you can move along one dimension, but not the other, or the second one and not the first, or some combination of, of both. So, so, you know, they're completely uh, any combination of those things. And you can move smoothly. And it's been found that when people are induced to quote unquote navigate in these quote unquote spaces, <laughs> you can see this hexadirectional signature in the activation patterns, not just in entorhinal cortex, but also in some other brain regions. And so this is leading people to speculate that the um, pattern that we first encountered in the entorhinal grid cells is a form of a more general type of organization that the brain uses for information that is multidimensional and continuous. And I think it's a really interesting idea, but I'm agnostic as to whether I'm convinced by it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't think of an alternative explanation for the hexadirectional pattern, but I also think it's such a big jump from physically moving through real space where you've got head direction cells and you've got vestibular signals and all of this stuff, to mentally moving through an abstract space. Mm. And, and part of me balks, balks at making that big jump. So I'm sitting on the fence about this. Certainly have huge um, 
admiration for those experiments. I think they're very cool and I tell my students all about them in admiring tones, but I'm waiting to see whether, whether that story um, pans out. But it may take another 30 years, you know, so I may not see it. <laughs> it feels like it, it would be a very elegant explanation though. It's very cool. It's a very cool idea. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. and the cleverness of the design of those experiments just just blows me away. You know, I I just think it's yeah, yeah. it's just beautiful experiments. Um yeah. I'm just not quite there yet in believing that that's how, how the brain works. But hmm. you know, I have an open mind. Can we talk about your personal journey in science as well? So what got you interested in science and in particular, the neuroscience of spatial navigation? Um, well, I was interested in science from a really young age, like from as far back as I can remember. Um, I was, you know, I was a really annoying why kid. You know, why does this happen? Why does that happen? You're bugging all of the adults all of the time, my teachers, and used to drive them crazy. So, <laughs> so I guess I've always had that sort of curiosity. Um, and, like I grew up in a really a small place, a small city in a small country, you know, which is New Zealand. Uh, and I didn't know any scientists and it doesn't have in fact a big research community. Um, I was surrounded by um, medical professionals. So my father was a surgeon, my mother a nurse and, and you know, I knew lots of medical people. And so uh, at the end of my schooling, I decided to study medicine because I thought I'm super interested in science. Medicine is a type of science. Um, I'm not sure I want to be a doctor, but it feels like, you know, I might want to be a doctor. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe it is for me, but at the very least I'll have a, a really good grounding in a, in a scientific discipline and then I can take it from there. And, you know, I discovered that I was fascinated by the science, but definitely didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> um, but while I was doing my degree, I got, I got really interested in, um, in sort of the, the mind-brain question, I guess. So I actually did psychology as an elective in my first year at medical school. And that opened a whole bunch of doors in my brain that I didn't know were there. I didn't know science, psychology was a science and kind of got interested in the mind. And then in my third year at medical school, we had to do um, a course called behavioral science. And we could do a project on anything that, that we liked. And I did my project on um, information theory, which is something that I just encountered in my reading and learned, you know, what I realized now was some quite foundational stuff about uh, information and how, you know, what it is. And, you know, began to relate that to the brain. And then maybe not that year, but the year, year after, or the, possibly the year after that, I encountered this book by Douglas Hofstadter, which won the Pulitzer Prize for being this just wacky wild journey through uh, artificial intelligence, basically. And it introduced me to the brain as a computational device and, and all of these just incredible ideas. Um, and, and linking these to the mind and consciousness. And, and I just thought this was incredible. This was just the ideas that were in it were so amazing. And I just thought, I want to study the mind body problem. You know, the, how does the brain make the mind? And I just didn't even know how to begin with that. But I went back to what I knew, which was my hometown where I, I kind of knew the, um, 
you know, the medical community there. And somebody put me in touch with some of the neuroscientists who were working in the psychology department. And I went and talked to them and uh, set myself up with a research project to do a master's doing bench work. So, so um, actually, so the project was to look at um, freely moving rats and to record from this brain area I'd never heard of called the hippocampus. And um, so, I, so I did that for a year and encountered uh, all of these ideas, which were really relevant to the thing I thought I was interested in. So learned about memory, learned about the hippocampus, learned about synaptic plasticity, which is what I was studying, which is this way that the, the cells can form connections as a result of experience. And, and we think you know, that's how memory is encoded. And I encountered the idea of place cells, although I never encountered a place cell because I was doing different types of experiments. Um, but at the end of that time, I thought, yeah, I really love doing this and I want to keep doing this. And so I, then I went and um, found a PhD position with Richard Morris in Edinburgh. And he is one of the pioneers of studying LTP, which is the synaptic plasticity process. So I, so I moved across the world to Edinburgh and found myself immersed in the neuroscience community in the UK. Learned, learned a lot about synaptic plasticity, learned to record a bit more, you know, a bit more skill from freely moving animals. But most importantly, I encountered John O'Keefe and play cells and thought, yeah, these are super cool. I want to study these. <laughs> um, so I went to work with O'Keefe after I finished my PhD um, and basically stayed in, in that realm ever since. Set up my own lab a few years later in, in the same university, which I, I didn't realize was an unusual thing for someone to do, just to set up as a sort of as a competitor um, in, your, in your supervisor's own institution. But actually, it's, it's become a lot more common now. And in fact, quite a few people from O'Keefe's lab have, have set up uh, at UCL. It's really a, a kind of a hub for, for that type of research. So, yeah, that was, um, that was my basic journey. I actually have um, the Gold Esca back book with me as well. <laughs> How do you? Did you? I've just started it. Um, I watched. Uh, I watched the so, uh, MIT had some lectures on YouTube on this book actually. So I watched those lectures. Um, and I've actually just started um reading it. But I think yeah, like Douglas Hofstadter is such an interesting person, and the ideas are so cool. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really really. Um, quirky and interesting mind. I mean, I think that book is possibly a little dated now because the idea, a lot of the ideas have kind of become mainstream, I guess. You know? mm. um, but, you know, it was revolutionary at the time yeah. for, you know, for a book that was written for the general public that was just introducing these ideas that were cutting edge about uh, computation and um, neural networks and all of this type of thing and how you could get a mind out of matter, which is still a super interesting question. You know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I hope you I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. The way he uses like form in the book, like all those dialogues and stuff is so interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I super deserve that prize. It's one of the best books I think I've ever read. It's certainly probably the one that's had the most influence on on me. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what was it like working with Richard Morris and John O'Keefe? Yeah, it was it was great. I mean, I back then they they were a little bit famous, but not super famous. So Richard Morris was famous, becoming rapidly more famous at the time for um, having invented this thing called the, the water maze, 
which um, is yeah. it's still the most sensitive task for picking up damage to the hippocampus that, that, that mm. we have. Um, and he was involved with some of the very early studies looking at this new discovery of synaptic plasticity, which, which came along, um, actually came along in the 70s, about the same time that place cells were, were um, discovered. It was found um, that, that neurons in the hippocampus, if you, if you activate them electrically, you can get them to form strengthened connections. Um, so Morris and O'Keefe and Tim Bliss, who was one of the discoverers of this, this LTB phenomenon, um, and Graham Collingridge, who discovered the, the, the role of one of the neurotransmitter receptors. In the early days, they were, were kind of collaborating to look at the, the kind of interaction of synaptic plasticity with spatial memory. So that was my job, was to um, kind of look at the um, properties of spatial, spatial memory and how they related to, to synaptic plasticity. Um, and this was in, in animals um, doing the water maze task and, and so on and so on. So, you know, so, so I kind of got introduced to that community and I didn't really realize how lucky I was to be working with these people at the time. And then I went to work with John O'Keefe and again, I didn't know, I knew he'd discovered place cells, but at that time, place cells weren't, weren't the huge thing that they are now and he was a long way from getting his Nobel Prize and so on. <laughs> so I didn't fully appreciate um, how incredibly fortunate I was. It, it took me a few years to think, I, I've got Morris, O'Keefe and Bliss, uh, the three referees on my CV. <laughs> my job oh, wow. And they're three of the most seminal neuroscientists in the UK. You know, it's, it's, I, I just you know, was incredibly lucky. I'm really privileged. I mean, they're just exceptionally good scientists and how they think, um, how they reason, how they design experiments. Um, and, and in what they think are the important questions. And, you know, I really learned an incredible amount from just from discussions with them and, and, and stuff. So yeah, that was really formative. Mm. Um, and I was, yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. What is your favorite part about doing science? I really, um, I really love thinking up and beginning a new experiment because you're burning with curiosity about what the answer is and you've got the idea. And I, I love the practicalities too of setting up the, um, the apparatus. And in fact, I, I discovered over the course of the years that I've been doing this work that I, that I really love um, building the apparatuses that we've used over the years. And in fact, I realized that that is, 50% um, of what I love about this, <laughs> this area is the, um, just the sort of structural, the interestingness of the structures, the, the symmetries and the, um, the way they extend. And, and, and that has led me into realizing that I have an interest in architecture. Um, and so in my later years, I've been exploring that interest with actual architects and trying to see if we can somehow link the work that we've been doing, looking at the brain's representation of, of architectural spaces, you know, can we link that with real architecture in the real world um, and use that to, to understand how humans appreciate architecture? So yeah, setting up a new experiment, building the apparatus, um, and then seeing the data come out and seeing what the answer was to the question. 
then there's a long period of time where you have to then collect more data <laughs> and then then it gets um then there's you know that's quite tiring mostly tiring for the person who's collecting the data which which generally isn't me um but then then there's the fun bit at the end which is analyzing and uh, writing up the data and i really love to write so i, I love the process of writing the paper um, in fact possibly too much i think i possibly don't let um my my colleagues you know, my postdocs and students do enough writing because because i you know I, I love it words pour out of my fingers and um and I sort of again it's a type of an architectural thing, but it's architecture in a, in a verbal space, if you like. And so I enjoy that as well. So for this last bit, I wanted to go back to our story about evolution as a whole and the future. Do you think that life forms can indefinitely increase in complexity? Hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> um my, I mean, not indefinitely, no, because the physics of, of the second law, you know, of thermodynamics ent entropy says um, that complexity will increase, but will eventually decrease again. Um, so Sean Carroll um, has written quite a bit about this. And the, the intuition behind it is that, you know, complexity relies I think on interactions between elements of whatever it is, whatever system you're looking at, particles or organisms or whatever it is that's that's the complex thing. You know, the, the complexity, the, the ability to exhibit different behaviors and different properties and different structures and all of those things that make up complexity, that depends on these interactions. Maybe, maybe um, you know, subatomic interactions or maybe social interactions, whatever. Um, but you know, for one thing, the universe is constantly expanding, and and so the ability for things for matter to interact is is eventually going to sort of dissipate. Um, and and I guess that's the sort of one of the big drivers for why complexity will eventually start to decrease again. So, for example, galaxies will start to drift apart. Um, mm. Eventually, they're so far apart from each other that you know, what whatever complex interstellar super civilization you had, could, they could no longer talk to each other. You know. All this kind of stuff. So, you know, on this time scale of the universe, complexity can't increase indefinitely. It will eventually decrease. Eventually, you know, according to my understanding of the most popular theories, there'll be a cold, dark emptiness where nothing interacts anymore. <laughs> um, but from even, even over a shorter time scale, so can humans, can, can we just continue to build civilization and, and will we even build an interstellar civilization? I used to think so when I was young. I used to think. You know, I used to avidly watch Star Trek and all of those things and think, yeah, that's the future. <laughs> Bold, boldly going where no, you know, man, woman or anyone else has gone. Um, I'm no longer so confident in that anymore because, because of what I've read about, the, you know, the history of life on Earth and the many near extinctions that we've, um, you know, the brushes with death that we've had. So life is hard to extinguish, but it's not impossible to extinguish. And as we get more complex, the number of ways in which we could extinguish ourselves also increases. So the climate catastrophe is just one of the many ways that we could end our complex civilization. There are many others, bioweapon, um, nuclear annihilation, you know, the more complex we get, the more avenues to extinction we discover. Um, 
And there's also the fact that we don't see signs of interstellar life either. And I feel after 13 billion years, if they were, if it was going to happen over the timescales of the universe's lifetime, it sort of seems like we might have seen it by now. We'd be seeing some anomalous signals that suggested that there was stuff going on in the universe that was that was interesting. We don't see any of that. Certainly haven't seen aliens land on Earth, but we haven't even seen any signs of radio transmission or any signs that, you know, black holes are being harvested for energy or uh, I don't know what signatures we might see, but we've seen nothing. So I'm, I'm slowly coming to the conclusion that, um, you know, that life on Earth might be a brief flicker, but I'm hoping it lasts a few more centuries, maybe even millions of years, <laughs> who knows. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think there's a limit to how complex we can become. There's quite a few interesting points there, but do you think that the climate, like climate change, do you think that's humanity's biggest existential threat? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I, it, it's really catastrophic. And I think that the trajectory that we're on right now um, is likely to end civilization within some number of centuries, at least, <laughs> if not decades, you know, if we can't stop it. So, so, so there's that challenge, can we stop this trajectory that we're on? I, I like to think that we could. You know, human life is kind of hard to eradicate because we humans are so smart. So, it's, so I think it's possible that we'll end up with a really hot planet with um, not much of it habitable, but some regions of it habitable. And we will have gone back to a, a pre-industrial civilization where we're trying to eke out an existence, you know, with the reduced um, biodiversity that we have. Maybe, maybe we're farming cattle and chickens or something like that. Maybe we've managed to keep a few things alive. And, um, but I think that, you know, the trajectory that we're on kind of looks bleak if you think that we're not going to solve it. Um, so I prefer the alternative that we are smart enough to solve it. And I think that we are potentially smart enough to solve it, uh, but it requires our collective you know, social intelligence, our ability to see beyond our own immediate needs and to work together with strangers and all the rest of it. Um, and I, and you know, I admit that there's not strong grounds for optimism, but I think there are some grounds for optimism. So I, I cling to those. Mm. Well, they, like practically, what do you think like the general public can do to combat this? Well, the general public, so, so I mean, the, the form of social organization that we have that enables us, like in, in, in many countries anyway, to get stuff done is democracy, where the general public vote on government, and then the government makes sure that everybody in the community is doing some basic minimum level of necessary things. Um, so I think to solve the climate crisis, we need to collectively stop using fossil fuels and putting them into the air. I don't think individuals alone can do that. I think only the government can make everyone do the necessary because we've already seen that people won't do stuff mm. for the collective benefit on their own. Some people will. There are always some people who are 
more collectively minded than others and, and they'll do their bit they'll do their recycling and they'll switch to electric cars and they'll turn down the heating and so on but i think um a large minority or possibly even a majority of people won't unless it's in their own best interests and the only way to make that in their own best interests is for governments to make them do that and the only way for governments to do that is for them to be voted in so what the general public can do is to vote in a government that will impose restrictions on our carbon production that's that's the only way that i can see for that, mm. for that to happen do you think technology can save us so throughout human history our development of technology has has led to a large increase in the number of existential risks so nuclear weapons bioweapons etc um, but technological advancements have also prevented these risks these risks from happening so far, um, do you think that our rates of growth of technology can be fast enough to prevent us from extinction? I mean, I wish I thought that. And I think I've nurtured that belief for a long time. And that's why I've not really ever been in the past particularly active on, on the issue of climate. I mean, we've known about global warming or heating, whatever you call it, for, for a long time. And I think I kind of like many people thought, yeah, we'll come up with a solution. Um, I now am not, now that I've dug into the numbers uh, and also been, along, been alive long enough to see how many things we haven't solved, um, I'm not sure that technology can solve this. It's a really big problem. You know, it's um, the scale of the problem is enormous and accelerating. So our carbon production is not only enormous, but exponentially increasing, whereas we need it to be zero. Um, mm. I don't think there's any technology that anyone can imagine that, that could be deployed at scale. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that the technology that we have to use is a social technology. I think we need to figure out how do we get nations to cooperate? You know, we've, we've, we do have renewable energy. I think we just need to persuade people to use renewable energy. And so I think that if I were to devote energy to tackling this problem, I would devote energy to how do we get governments on board? Like how do we get all of the governments on board? So, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. behavioral science may be the thing that, that we should be pouring money into, not, not technology. Um, <laughs> because, it, because ultimately the climate crisis is a behavioral problem it's not a technological problem mm. it's you know how do we get humans to um act against their own immediate self-interests in service of um our long-term survival and welfare and i think we're possibly the only species that's ever evolved that could do this and the question is can we um but you know i i think i think we can yeah i guess the problem is trying to align everyone's self-interest with the interests of the species yeah that's that's it in a nutshell yeah i was gonna ask like <laughs> if human extinction is inevitable what do you think the point of understanding neuroscience is <laughs> yeah good question i mean like, i don't think it's inevitable tomorrow I, tomorrow like i don't think we're going to go extinct immediately <laughs> i mean you could you could ask that question of life couldn't, yeah. couldn't you like what's what's the point of life uh, and, and I think probably we've all gone through that. What is the point of life? Um, and the answer 
I mean, I'm not religious. I think for a lot of religious people, the, the point of life is sort of beyond our current existence. For me as, a, as an atheist, I mean, life is its own point. It's just fun. Um, what else would you do? <laughs> if you went to life, you'd be dead and that's really boring. Um, and we're doing that soon anyway. So, so, you know, while we're alive, you know, I think we should try and preserve life because, you know, why not? Yeah. There's, there's a part of me that feels like the us being here and even being able to experience anything in this world is, is beautiful in itself. And that already gives life enough meaning. Um, but there's another part of me that <laughs> naively hopes that maybe there is some objective function of uh, trying to increase the knowledge within the universe about how the universe works. I don't know why, but to me, that feels intrinsically valuable. Um, but then I was listening to your conversation with Sean Carroll. That was a great episode. Um, and there was a really striking point that you and Sean Carroll mentioned, and you talked about this just now as well. And the idea that once the entropy of our universe inevitably reaches its maximum billions of years later, then our universe would disappear with no memory of anything that existed in this universe. Does that give you any angst at all? <laughs> um, it's funny because, you know, that's billions of years in the future. So, so why would it give me angst? And yet there is, you know, a part of me that wishes that that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think we have a, we sort of have an instinct for there want, wanting there to be an eternity. Yeah. Um, but I think that's just a, a sort of a psychological quirk. Um, and maybe, maybe we've evolved that because that helps us work towards the future, not just of our children, but of our grandchildren. You know, the, the future thinking that we have is what helps us self-replicate, right? So maybe that's why we have it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, some, sometimes I, I think, yeah, the sun, our sun is going to go Nova in a few million years, I think, um, and, and obliterate all of the planets in the solar system, does that bother me? And sometimes I think, yeah, it bothers me. I just kind of hope we can get off the planet before then. <laughs> and other times I think, no, that's millions of years away. Like, you know, um, I'm going to be dead in a few decades, doesn't matter. Um, so, so yeah, I'm able to hold those two thoughts simultaneously. I, I sort of wish there was an eternity. I sort of also understand that it's not even theoretically possible. Mm. Um, but that's okay because we're here now and um, that's what matters and while we're here we'll have a party and <laughs> find out as much as we can you know I uh, yeah do science not just for, not just for its utility but also because it's enjoyable and so I guess do it for that reason yeah the idea that like life on earth is probably just very fleeting in the whole history of the universe is also quite interesting and really feels like puts humanity in perspective like we're just very small compared to everything else yeah yeah sometimes when I want to make myself feel small I'll look at the um you know a diagram of the evolutionary tree 
uh, and you know which, which just looks like um, a mass of hair really it looks like the fur on the back of a cat you know it's just millions and millions of these little branches um, and we're just you know as human species we're just one of those little hairs <laughs> and I think yeah even within life on earth we are pretty minuscule in, yeah. in the grand scheme of things yeah. and, um, and I find that simultaneously it bothers me but also I find it slightly comforting in a way as well I'm, I sort of think okay maybe we are going to produce a mass extinction but they've happened in the past and life itself has sprung back richer and more vigorous than before you know because it's got it starts it springs back from a bigger starting point with quite a few genes that the previous cycle didn't have and so maybe what comes after us will be even better and more interesting and with fewer of our bad points <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you also mentioned that um we haven't had found that found any signs of extraterrestrial life um so do you not think that this same process of evolution that had occurred on Earth might be also be likely to occur on other planets as well? I mean, I think, of course, it's possible because if it could happen here, it could happen anywhere. Yeah. And I yeah. used to, you know, back in my Star Trek days, I used to think, yeah, the universe must be teeming with life. I think that was the general thought back in the 70s. Um, There's this general sort of optimistic belief, you know, the space program was at a, was, was full swing and we sort of thought yeah pretty soon we'll be off this planet and we'll meet all the other aliens i think now we're starting to realize that the conditions under which life has been able to form on earth are really quite special you know it, it had to be an extraordinary confluence of factors had you know the um, temperature has to be just right gravity has to be just right you know everything has to be just right the, you know we've got an iron core which stops stops molecules being blasted to smithereens by the energy from the sun you know there are just all of these things that happen to come together in this one planet um, and then it needed to be stable for billions of years for evolution to be able to evolve um, to, you know to be able to unfold and so on and i'm becoming increasingly mindful of the possibility that the law of you know large numbers sort of says it's possible that those unlikelinesses multiply really quickly to the extent that not very many planets in the galaxy even could have had those conditions for long enough mm. for complex life to have evolved. Yeah. So, so I'm becoming less surprised that we haven't seen signs of a galactic civilization. Mm. Yeah. Um, also, when I started to appreciate just how unstable complex life is and, and how maybe it never Maybe it, maybe it arises frequently, but doesn't persist long enough. So Yeah. But yeah, I also have a hope that, I mean, I guess, yeah, like most intelligent civilizations probably don't persist for very long. Um, and it, it could be that we're not seeing any signs because our existence doesn't overlap with any other the existence of other or other intelligent civilizations. So there was this cool analogy of um, so if you go to a party that's five hours and um, everybody stays there for a long time, then you'd probably see a lot of people. But if everyone like if the if the universe was five hours, then humans would have been there for only like fifteen seconds or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, not not enough time to socialize. So if you only go to a party for 15 seconds, 
if everybody only goes to a party for 15 seconds, you'd probably not meet anybody. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's quite possibly true. Mm. But it's also possible that not so many people went to that party as we true. at first thought. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, such cool ideas. Um, one final question. What advice do you have for young scientists? Ooh, um, I'd say focus on the climate crisis. <laughs> Get it out of this. <laughs> Find a technology. <laughs> no, I, I think, um, oh, advice. Um, I guess, you know, stay curious. Um, take, take opportunities. Take opportunities as they come along. And um, if they don't seem to be coming along, try and create some. Um, I suppose one, one side piece of advice is if you get a really weird result in your experiment then, that you can't explain, um, don't brush it off. <laughs> because, I, because I did this fairly early on in, in my career when I was a postdoc with John O'Keefe and I was recording interrhinal cortex and I found a cell that I couldn't really explain and I kind of brushed it off. And I realized in retrospect, it was a grid cell. And <laughs> I've got it. I've, I've cut out the page where I, where I recorded it, and I've kept it for posterity. It, it's, it's a little memento of, of my stupidity as a young scientist. Uh, <laughs> Isaac Asimov um, said um, some, something like, "You know, the, one of the sort of the best questions in science is um, is not not what is that, but." Oh, that's funny. You know, <laughs> the weird, you know, the weird findings that you weren't expecting and that weren't the answers to questions, but that you can't explain are often doors into a whole new uh, universe of research. And you should be, um, you know, alive to those possibilities. Chance favors the prepared mind and all, all of that. So yeah, smatterings of advice. Not nothing, nothing really mind blowing. It's, it's mostly hard slog and slowly building a career <laughs> from from bricks yeah kate it's been an honor talking to you thanks for spending your time with me thank you and it's been really interesting talking to you and your questions were very thought-provoking and um good luck with your with your own career going forwards <laughs>